all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 194 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the RAF Transport Squadron episode of the SLS guest because it turns out that uh, the Royal Air Force actually had a transport squadron, primarily transport squadron, active for three different periods between World War I, World War II, and in the neighborhood of uh, the Korean conflict that was called 194 Squadron RAF. And um, they did some pretty cool things, so check those puppies out and with that wonderful little bit of royal air force knowledge i of course am matt and coming to us all the way from sunny california would be our resident sony employee tim right on (laughs) and how are you doing matthew I am doing okay. Gearing up for my official start of school tomorrow. Ooh. And uh, then straight off to, uh, to to Oklahoma City for the weekend. What about you? What are, what are you? What have you been up to? Oh uh, well, I was in San Diego a couple days ago for the Guns N' Roses concert. Yeah, they were here in uh, Houston just a little bit ago. Yeah, they played Energy, the football stadium. Yeah, they were there a few weeks ago. Um, yeah, so we w- I went down to... The reason why I saw them in, in San Diego, not uh, L.A., it's because they decided to promote the San Diego show before they even decided to do an L.A. show, but yet the San Diego show was the, the last show on their U.S. leg. So I'm really not too sure what they're thinking is. I'm kind of thinking that they're going to come back once they kind of, you know, maybe take a break from one another. To maybe like each other again? I don't know. Sure. I mean, it, you know, it only took like 27 years the first time. Eh, it probably won't take as long next time. Yeah. Are you a big Guns N' Roses fan? Yeah. I definitely appreciate what they did for music. But yeah. uh, I've read some biographies and uh, studied the band some and everything. And um, not really happy with some of Mr. Rose's antics that basically caused the 27-year rift to occur. So, Oh, it was but uh, it was all their faults. Oh, sure, 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 but mainly his. I don't know about that, because everybody else was a heroin addict. Well, like, Slash was a heroin addict, and... I don't know. When you got one guy who shows up and says, you guys are going to sign everything over to me, including the name and everything, or I walk five minutes before, an ep- before a show, um, you know, and these guys literally have nothing... That's kind of a dick move. So. Well, that sucks, too. That, you know, that was like the cherry on the top, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's great. Axel definitely looks quite different. He's the only one that is noticeably different than anybody else in the band. It looked like it was Kathleen Turner playing the role of Axel Rose. <laughs> is he still a heavier set and wearing the fedora and trench coat action, is he still doing that? Well, he's actually dre- he's wearing all of the same old clothes that he wore in the late eighties and early nineties, just oh, okay, so a good. few sl- a few uh-huh. sizes bigger. Well, that, <laughs> so, okay, 
Well, then at least he's gotten rid of the um, Dick Tracy outfit, so that's good. Yeah, so, you know, he's doing that little snake move that he does, and he's not sitting on his throne anymore since he, you know, when he broke his leg and shit. All right, well, cool. Well, I think we have a show that uh, we, we need to get right into and right on through, so shall we get right to it? We shall. All right, let's move right to the old mailbox here. Of course, if you would like to send us an email, you can do that by sending an email to the show at slscast.com. We have no emails to speak of this week, but we do have a Twitter follower to mention. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can, of course, do that by following us at the SLScast on Twitter. Uh, our Twitter follower is yet another podcast. Our pattern family keeps growing. Uh, the EMA Hip Hop Podcast at EMA underscore Radio One, and it's a weekly hip hop podcast out of Baltimore, Maryland. Um, yeah, so thanks for the follow there, guys. And um, we go from there to some news. If you're ready for some news, are you ready for some news, sir? I think we are all ready. For some news. All right, folks, and here we go. It's the news. First up from me, uh, from cartoonbrew.com by way of Ian Fails. Uh, Laika was crazy enough to animate a 16-foot-tall skeleton for Kubo and the Two Strings. Of all the many achievement in Li- achievements in Laika's new- newest stop-motion animated adventure, Kubo and the Two Strings, uh, th- clearly the biggest is the giant skeleton. Uh, 16 feet tall and weighing 400 pounds, the skeleton is considered by the studio to be the largest stop-motion puppet ever made. It required extensive planning, design, build, and animation phases. Even a giant mechanical robot was considered to operate it, plus a major visual, visual effects effort to place the skeleton in its home, the Hall of Bones. Cartoon crew, uh, Brew explores the quote insane unquote idea to build and animate the skeleton and how Laika actually went through with it. Uh, this is a really cool article, uh, and it is very detailed with multiple images and videos. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there, uh, because otherwise it would be forever to go through it all. But this is a really, really fascinating read. And you actually get a brief insight into um, at least the scope of this particular part of the project, uh, because it is a mid-credits scene in... Uh, at the end of Kubo and the Two Strings. And you really get to see just exactly all the effort and stuff that went into this thing, and it's just absolutely fantastic. Uh, and even though it's only about a minute or so, uh, you're still just kind of, you know, going, wow, mind blown. So it's really and truly worth checking out. It doesn't spoil anything about the movie either. It just kind of, I think, makes you really appreciate the effort that went into it, uh, especially in today's computer-animated age. So, uh, what do you think there, Tim? Uh, I, I know that you knew about this article as well. So, are you know, were you excited to go into the delve into the details and all that stuff? Or? Yeah, this is by far the best animated movie I've seen this year. I mean, a shit ton of work went into it. I think it is personally. I think it's the best looking film from from uh, from this company that you know that they've cut from uh, Lakia or or Laika. 
Mm. Uh, I mean, better looking than Paranorman, better looking than Coraline, I thought, uh, and better looking than Box Trolls. So, uh, man, it's just amazing how much work went into it, and yet the movie really didn't do as well at the box office, unfortunately. I, I think it's really because people simply didn't know what to make of it. Um, it hasn't... the. I really didn't see a lot of previews for it, even at the movie theater. I never really saw a lot of trailers or anything. Um, and I think people were expecting something, or I think people, based on the trailers, were expecting um, something that might have been, concept-wise, a little bit further out than what they were used to, which may, which translates to something that, oh, well, maybe it's not as much for kids as we think it should be, and hence they didn't go and see it which is a which is sad and a mistake because obviously they would have been wrong but um it yeah i think it is kind of an anomaly um because it's definitely um there's even articles out there talking about how this is the weakest launch for Leica to date um even though it's getting fantastic reviews kubo and the two strings so uh but just yet another amazing avenue to this movie so yeah, that's all I got on that one, so take it away, sir. I'm going to do a trio of uh, little bits of news here. Uh, first, George's kind of mentions. I, you know, a lot we've seen, Matt, I mean, we between you and I, we've probably seen most most of the movies out there that pertain to drugs. and Or maybe just me. I guess maybe just me. I, I guess I shouldn't rope you into this. We've all seen Scarface with Pacino snorting cocaine. And uh, you got the Scorsese movies and people are popping pills and even smoking even more cocaine and people smoking weed and whatever 70s hippie, you know, movie or whatever. I mean, for those of you who do not know, all that is not real. They're not actually snorting cocaine or smoking weed or popping real pills. It's all fake. (laughs) But according to Jonah Hill... I'm starting to believe that even the fake cocaine can eventually take its toll on the human body. Via etonline.com, Jonah Hill says he snorted too much fake cocaine on Wolf of Wall Street set, and he had to be a hospital, <laughs> and he had to be hospitalized. Written by Alex Ungerman. I'm just gonna read uh, the first two couple paragraphs here, and it says this: even fake drugs can have real consequences. Jonah Hill appeared on this week's Any Given Wednesday with Bill Simmons, where the War Dog star opened up about his time filming the 2013 movie Wolf of Wall Street, specifically the toll all the fake drugs he had to take had on his system, saying, quote, I had to be hospitalized, and quote, Hill 32 revealed, quote, if you ingest that much matter into your lungs, you'll get very sick, and we were literally doing fake coke for seven months every day, end quote. But even though it involved a trip to the ER, Hill admits the experience wasn't all bad. Quote, I never had more vitamin D in my entire life, end quote, he said joking. Quote, I could have lifted a car over my fucking head. End all quotes there. <laughs> Before I go into this next article, which I really don't have to read anything from it, uh, Matt, I, I gotta ask you, what... I we I, I guess like you could call it a reality TV show. What reality TV show do you think 
the do you think Ruben Flesher, the director of Zombieland, is now tasked to direct reality TV? Um, been around for years. Honey Boo Boo. No, Long, been oh. been around significantly longer than Honey Boo Boo. Oh, reality series. It could be uh, considered as one of the uh, the longest running reality TV shows. Big Brother. Half hour. Or, oh, uh, half hour longest running. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to man. I'm going road rules. I'll throw I'll throw crime in there. Hillbillies. Um, America. Uh, no, I chasing people down cops? alleyway. Cops. Like... <laughs> wow. Zombie lands. Ruben Flesher attaching uh, to direct movie based on TV show. Cops. <laughs> and apparently, according to Deadline dot com. Cops, a feature adaptation of the famous police reality procedural TV series. The idea is to turn that vibe, best known for its catchy theme song, into an edgy narrative feature with a buddy comedy bent on the order of a lethal weapon. Cameron Faye, Cameron Faye will write the script, and Boys Schiller Film Group will finance the film. Fleischer and David Bernard will produce through the directing, uh, through the district... Through the district, along with cops, rights holder Langley Films, Jong Langley. Uh, what do you think about this? I mean, I really don't understand the point. If you're, if it's not cops, then it's going to be like it sounds like Reno nine one one. To be honest, I think this is a terrible, terrible idea. I, I guess I missed. Are they trying to keep this in a reality format, or are they trying to um, make it? like a show about how these kinds of shows are made or is it kind of like paralleling well pretty much all that this article says is that uh the plan is to take that vibe to turn that vibe into an edgy narrative feature with a buddy comedy bent kind of like lethal weapon just more shaky cam and i mean angry police officers (laughs) so basically 21 jump street with uh with no overarching narrative um yeah this sounds like a really really bad idea just a bad idea all the way around and i happen to agree with you finally the the third the last piece of this quick news vr virtual reality is super popular nowadays um sony where i work we did a virtual reality uh, thingamabob for the walk where it actually felt like you were doing the tightrope between the two towers. Uh, we did a virtual a VR thing for Insidious, and we also just did one for Ghostbusters. But I think this one, this virtual reality experience, a uh, long-form virtual reality experience, I should say, to me really takes the cake. Matt, what do you think? Like, would you be interested... In experiencing the story of Christ, in particular, in particular, his crucifixion via VR. <laughs> well, I guess it would be bring a whole new meaning to the phrase "get down from your cross." 
I'm gonna I'm gonna say no. <laughs> Deadline.com has this article here: Jesus VR, the story of Christ. Venice Film Fest to spread the virtual reality word, written by Nancy Tartaglioni. Tart- Tartaglioni, I guess. The Venice Film Festival has added special screenings of 40 minutes of virtual reality feature, Jesus VR, The Story of Christ. At a full 90 minutes, the film is produced by Toronto-based Autumn Productions in LA's v, uh, VR Works. VR, W-E-R, yeah, VR Works. The company's previously set a Christmas release on all major VR platforms. Now they'll have a Venice showcase to help spread the word. The film has an interesting pedigree with Italian industry vet Enzo Sisti, executive producing. He was EP on Mel Gibson's $612 million worldwide grocer, The Passion of the Christ. That same film's religious advisor, Father William Fulco, also advised on Jesus VR. Gibson himself will be in Venice on September 4th to debut his war drama, Hacksaw Ridge, out of competition. And it says here a brief synopsis of (laughs) the story of Jesus VR, if you're not already familiar with it, uh, is about the story of Christ, which goes back 2,000 years back in time to witness the story of Jesus Christ from birth to resurrection. The film whose producer... the film, whose producers promise a, quote, you are their experience, end quote, includes such events as Jesus' baptism, the Sermon on the Mount, the Last Supper, and the crucifixion. <laughs> End all quotes there. Again, you can find that article if you want to read more about it on Deadline.com. Jesus VR, the story of Christ, Venice Film Fest to spread the virtual reality world uh, is there anything matt you would like to experience in virtual reality uh movie wise like any particular historical event or fictional event or whatever i don't know i think it might be cool to like um you know explore uh like hogwarts or um like like the death star or something like that i think that would be fun to be able to actually move around through through really badass movie sets and stuff like that right I would like to do that, sure. Well, maybe once we get past all this religious shit and, you know, concerts, all this crazy concerts gimmicky stuff, we'll actually get into something pretty cool. Like GoldenEye in virtual reality. That'd be pretty cool. Oh, dude. That would be awesome just to recreate the opening scene. Fuck yeah, dude. See? Yeah. There's lots of fun stuff that I would like to do in VR, movie-wise. So, just... Just not be crucified. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, uh, let's see here. Next up from me from io9.gizmodo.com. Uh, by way of Jermaine Lus- uh, I'm sorry, Lussler. Uh, Vin Diesel confirms the Guardians of the Galaxy will be in Avengers Infinity War. The filmmakers behind 2018's Avengers Infinity War probably aren't ready to talk too much about its secrets, but Vin Diesel doesn't give a fuck. On Facebook Live, the voice of Groot revealed that yes, he and the Guardians of the Galaxy will be in the next Avengers film. Speaking on Facebook, Diesel said the following, quote, The Guardians will be included in Avengers Infinity War, and that's incredibly exciting. Incredibly exciting, incredibly exciting, and something that if you were a part of our page, you knew before everybody. End quote. Um, I'm gonna, the, the, it's a very brief article. It's got a few more paragraphs 
from there. But I would say that that was probably uh, more more or less expected, I think. But uh, with James Gunn really being kind of anti-Guardians as a part of the larger Marvel Universe, um, I think maybe then spoke too soon on that personally because while they might have some kind of role, I know that Gunn is really fighting to keep the integrity of Guardians as a standalone project um, that might tangentially be involved but not necessarily going to show up to save the day or something like that a la Avengers uh, Civil War and stuff like that where everybody's you know coming up just to have appearances and stuff so um but I don't know, you know, Vin wants to do his own hype thing, so I guess good for him. What do you think there, Tim? Um, questions, comments, concerns on the Vin Diesel announcement? I don't I I just really think he needs to shut his mouth with certain things. <laughs> like, again, that's a, I mean, I, I really don't see Guardians playing a huge part in any of the Avengers movies. But in like, just like you said... But it would it would have been fun in something different if all of a sudden the Guardians of the Galaxy crew showed up for like a little scene or for like the very end or to help, you know, people out or help them out with something. You know, that would have been cool, you know, but I think it would have been better if it wasn't expected. I, I really think it would have been a nice surprise, um, but I guess, you know, speculation got out there and... Um... Yeah, I, I have no idea. So, anyways, what else do you have there for us, sir? Alrighty, I will end my news with these uh, last two pieces. Um, I'm just going to mention that the Big Lebowski spinoff movie entitled Going Places has begun filming, and that is the spinoff movie featuring John Turturro's Jesus in a ViaCollider.com, Big Lebowski spinoff Going Places unveils John Turturro's Jesus in first set image. This is an article written by Nick Romano, and it says this, As HBO viewers continues to fall in love with John Turturro's latest persona, a defense attorney with eczema to boot on the night of, the actor is returning to an oldie but a goodie Days after word broke out of Going Places, a film spinoff of The, Bil the Big Lebowski, the first photo of Tuturo's back as bowler Jesus Quintana has hit the web. And apparently Susan Sarandon uh, posted the image to Instagram uh, where she wrote, quote, The man, John Tuturo, on location, love you, end quote. And according to Birth Movies dot. Uh, Birth Movies Death, which first reported going places, was already in its first two weeks of production. The story centers on two petty thieves, Terturo and uh, Cannaval, who compete to give a woman tatou, or, uh, tattoo, T-A-U-T-O-U, her first orgasm. So those two guys compete to give her her first orgasm. Sarandon, meanwhile, is said to play a criminal just released from jail after a long sentence the coen brothers have nothing to do with this movie just to throw that out there so because of that matt are you looking forward to you to uh, to it or are you interested or are you proceeding with caution i guess i think definitely i shall i, I shall 
say cautiously optimistic on that one. Yeah. Uh, and it does say in this article that Going Places is now essentially a remake of the 1974 French film Les Valsues, centering on Jesus. Uh, Tuturo, who previously wrote and directed Fading Gigolo, starring himself and Woody Allen, also penned the script and directs the film. And also, uh, lastly, the news, this will conclude the news for me, via Variety.com, Ben-Hur could lose $100 million at box office. This is written by Brent Lang. I'm just going to read a little bit of this here. Ben-Hur could lose $100 million after collapsing at the box office last weekend. The biblical epic cost over 100 well over $100 million to produce and tens of millions to market and distribute globally. That amounts to a hefty price, one that stands little chance of being recouped following Ben-Hur's paltry $11.2 million domestic debut. You heard that right. A hundred million plus dollar movie to produce and make only made $11.2 million opening weekend. The film will be lucky to top out at $30 million when it finishes its stateside run and will almost certainly shed screens next weekend as theaters try to move more popular films onto the real estate. Those estimates come from executive uh, executives at Rival Studios. Sources close to the film, however, believe that all the ultimate losses will likely be between $60 million and $75 million because they think that the film could do well on DVD and other home entertainment platforms. Ben-Hur seemed, uh, Ben-Hur seemed to resonate more strongly in the South, particularly with faith-based customers. Overseas, Ben-Hur may fare better. The film kicked off to 10.7 mil from 18 international markets, representing 31% of territories where the movie will ultimately roll out. It could do $100 million uh, of business overseas by the time it ends its run. It's not clear what percentage of that will, flaw, uh, of that will flow back to the film's backers. Uh, domestically, studios go, uh, domestically, studios get roughly half of a film's ticket sales, but internationally it varies by territory. Sources at Rival Studios put the film's break-even point at approximately $250 million globally. Again, if you want to read more of this article, Variety.com, Ben-Hur could lose $100 million at the box office. Is this surprising to you, Matt? I mean, to me, I wasn't quite surprised by this. I mean, we've seen the stylistic, biblical action crap before... Uh, Exodus, God and Kings, the Ridley Scott movie that came out a couple years ago, did well because it featured Christian Bale in the lead role and Ridley Scott directed it, but the movie wasn't a massive success. And then earlier on this year, we had Alex Proyas's Gods of Egypt, and surprisingly, that movie so far has been doing better than this film, uh, comparing the two opening weekends. Is it, again, is it a surprise to you? Oh, not at all. And I and the and the worst part of it is, um, is that in this particular instance, uh, this Ben Hur is actually not a remake of Charlton Heston's Ben Hur. Um, it is a reimagining of the novel itself, um, which is from like eighteen eighty two or something like eighteen eighty nine. I mean, so. I think that they probably needed to differentiate it 
because everybody is like nobody wants to see another Ben Hur. There's a reason why Ben Hur is like this, you know, standalone epic film, regardless of how you feel religiously. I mean, there's just amazing movie making going on here. And then you have this, which is this kind of wannabe uh tits and togas Bible epic ish thing, and yet it has its own legs. Um, I don't, I, I don't know how well it's been received critically per se, but um, I just think that they calling it Ben Hur was a mistake. I think that they should have done a better job of trying to differentiate this picture to at least give it a chance. And I think it's once again people are just kind of sick of the only thing being available are remakes and reboots and sequels to shit people don't care about um maybe hollywood would do well to come back with the mid-budget movie you know 30 million right you know 20 million 40 million get a decent cast and throw out throw out some movies that people might actually want to see that it's not a big risk if it doesn't do as well but it also doesn't need to do as well to make a name for itself like sausage party 19 million to make and it made 30 yeah. some odd million true but apparently weekend. there there's been some there's been there's been a few um allegations thrown about regarding best practices in labor for that <laughs> those for people didn't need movie. to get paid what are you no, talking no. about they, they totally didn't need to get blackballed either but hey apparently that happened as well so you know. <sighs> Anyway, all right, well, let's see here. Last for me uh, will be from TheAtlantic.com by way of Derek Thompson. And we have here how Hollywood accounting can make a $450 million movie unprofitable. Yes, here is an amazing glimpse into the dark side of the force that is Hollywood economics. The actor who played Darth Vader still has not received residuals from the 1983 film Return of the Jedi because the movie, which ranks 15th in U.S. box office history, still has no technical profits to distribute. How can a movie that grossed $475 million on a $32 million budget not turn a profit? It comes down to Tinseltown Accounting. As Planet Money explained in an interview with Edward J. Epstein in 2010, studios typically set up a quote-unquote corporation for each movie they produce. Like any company, it calculates profits by subtracting expenses from revenues. Erase any possible profit, the studio charges this movie corporation a big fee that overshadows the film's revenue. For accounting purposes, the movie is a money loser, quote-unquote, and there are no profits to distribute. Confused? Imagine you're running a lemonade stand with your buddy Steve. Your mom says you have to share half your profits with your sister. But you don't want to. So you pretend your buddy Steve is actually a corporation. Uh, call him Steve Inc. Charging you rent for the stand, the spoon, etc. Dang, Mom, I don't have any profits. I had to pay it all to Steve Inc., you say when you come home. But the money isn't gone. It's as good as yours. In your best friend's pocket. So, Return of the Jedi is a $475 million lemonade stand. Um, and of course... You, you know, the, the article does say, Hollywood can't really work like this, you're thinking. 
but it does. Last year, the website TechDirt revealed a balance sheet from Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, which, under Hollywood accounting, ended up with a $167 million loss, even though it's one of the top-grossing films of the last decade. Warner Brothers charged about $350 million in distribution, advertising, and interest fees to this external corpora- uh, corporation, and they do show the actual receipt. Um, now, this article is actually from 2011, but still it goes to demonstrate what is happening even today. Um, it says, uh, and yeah, I'll just stop there. It's a little brief ending there. But um, this is why we that's most people say that like i always say we have that rule of thumb where if the movie makes twice its per, its posted production budget you can assume that it's at least broke even or starts to make a little bit of money um which is how they start to justify sequels but this is why they said something like uh, like iron man 2 had to make like a billion dollars or whatever before or avengers or whatever it was um before it started to make money even though they had a 220 million dollar budget so um, it's, it's bullshit. I, I'm sorry. This is complete and utter bullshit. And, uh, I don't know how, I really don't know how to make it stop without, uh, government interference. And I'm not really a big fan of that either. Cause that's just a downhill slope that, uh, slippery slope that I'm not sure is worth going on. What do you think, Tim? Or, um, or do you, do you find this practice to be just the way it is? Um, do you find it abhorrent, or are you just okay with it? Or no. maybe you don't have an opinion. <laughs> well, no, I I do. Um, I I don't like it. I mean, I think bigger budget movies, and I I mean, I could see. Yeah, I mean, I could see the practice going for bigger budget movies. I suppose, like insanely large budgeted movies like Avengers or you know uh, Transformers or some shit like that and people love them and they still go and see them and so they're willing to take risks I would be okay with it if they still made like what we were or what you were mentioning before the moderate 30 million dollar movie the moderate 20 million dollar movie where you, you could it could still have a big production value but the risk is small. Like, for example, The Walk with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. That movie, believe it or not, did not cost a lot to make. Um, it was relatively cheap. But the movie was still entertaining. The movie still felt big. And that's what Sony was planning on doing. That was like a test. But unfortunately, the movie didn't go well. So I really don't know if they're still planning on doing that type of thing or, or not. But... I you know I I think movie studios need to take a big step back or open up another division of their studio where they make these modest uh you know smaller films. All right. Well, that's my news. I think then that closes off the news then. Yes, sir. That's weird. I, I don't know that I've ever ended the news before. <laughs> All right. Well, in that case, we will move into Thirty Square. And this 
this week's three squared is our back to school movies. We're picking movies that um, are all about school, bringing that school nostalgia to you, which is, you know, fitting because either last week or this week or maybe even next week, if you're one of those lucky people who get to start later, uh, you know, you've been inundated with it on Facebook and Instagram and all that good stuff. Uh, Twitter maybe as well. All these people with their stupid kids. I know I'm one of those people who's doing it, so sorry. Uh, putting up their stupid kid pictures. Oh, look how cute they are. It's so nice to back to school. So, um, why not jump into the spirit with our picks for our back-to-school movies? And I guess we shall begin. Uh, first up for me, I'm going to do these in chronological order for you. Uh, 1986's Back to School. It's a comedy film starring Rodney Dangerfield, uh, and it centers on a wealthy but uneducated father who goes to college to show solidarity with his discouraged son and learns that he cannot buy an education or happiness. This movie, um, is a was a huge hit it made a ton of money uh got pretty good reviews from critics it actually has an 81 percent on uh rotten tomatoes uh, roger ebert gave it a, uh, ebert gave it a really good review when he came out so it's a lot of fun to watch and uh also features a very young robert downey jr in there and so um yeah definitely i find it to be a very funny movie and really showcases Dangerfield at his best, I think, um, right before it kind of before he kind of started going downhill movie wise in the nineties. And um absolutely worth a watch there. Next up from nineteen ninety one is another comedy film. It's a sport comedy film. It's called Necessary Roughness and it is directed by Stan Dragoti, which actually is the last movie that he did. And stars this one stars Scott Bakula along with people like Sinbad and Hector Elizondo, remember him, uh, as a uh, basically a, a, a fictional college in Texas has had a huge scandal that leaves the football team with like only 17 people. Uh, they don't have enough to actually have a full team, and so they have to go and find creative recruiting and basically creating a gridiron team, which basically plays the whole time nonstop. Uh, and they find this 31-year-old guy who was a high school phenom but never moved on to college. And they basically pluck him back out of obscurity and drop him into playing college football in his 30s. And this, of course, is Scott Bakula. So, um, and it's their, you know, it, it, can the team actually make it? It's pretty, it's a, it's a pretty entertaining movie. Not really all that great, but... I found it charming, and I mean, it's got a young Rob Schneider in there as the announcer, so that, that that's definitely fun to watch. Finally, from me, uh, from 1999, is Never Been Kissed, the romantic comedy, the rom-com, directed by Raja Gosnell, and it stars Drew Barrymore, David Arquette, and Lily Sobieski, along with, like, Molly Shannon and John C. Riley. Um, also, James Franco. Uh, his first film appearance. And this is about a young lady who is a copy editor for the Chicago Sun-Times and actually goes back to infiltrate what high school is like um, because it, it, the idea is it will help parents understand their kids better by reporting on what it's actually like in high school today. 
And and then of course uh, Drew Barrymore is the one who's assigned to go back and do this undercover assignment. Um, and yada 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 shenanigans ensue. This is actually a really really cute movie. Um, I don't know necessarily if it's aged well, but I know that for me nostalgia would uh, would kick in on this one as I watch and would just make me enjoy it still. Uh, but it does have the benefit of being right at the cusp of the 2000s where we're almost 20 years later <laughs> um but they had a but because pop culture was starting to homogenize and not really uh anchor like we have it today where everything just kind of blends and fades and really it's just kind of technology that sets things apart there's still a pretty cool timeless quality to this one because despite all of the advances that we've made and how we have idiots using Snapchat to do stupid stuff and um, tracking with social media, there are still core tenets of the high school experience that haven't really changed. Clicks are still there. That's always going to be a thing. The sport aspect of life is going to be a thing. Um, interactions and, and really having your own coming of age moments with friendships and defining the roles of your youth um, are all things that are still there. And it's kind of fun to watch that rapper change. So um, I, I found this one to be a, to be a good one as well. And those are my picks for back to school movies. Again, 1986 is back to school. Uh, 1991's necessary roughness and 1999's never been kissed. What do you got there for us, Tim? You did know that the stipulations for this three squared was that we couldn't include the words back to school in the title of the movies. No, that was not communicated to me. Well, 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 you weren't the only (laughs) one that dropped the ball this weekend, Matthew, because even though I was the one that kind of proposed this three squared, I couldn't. I I was having a difficult time, dare I say, I forgot to choose the third movie. Last week, I knew I was going to choose this and that, but didn't know what the other one would be. So unfortunately, I am going to go with my all-time favorite film, A Cinderella Story, starring Hilary Duff, the all-time best back-to-school movie, which was the take on the poor white girl with... Uh, she's not... No, I'm kidding. It's not Cinderella Story. I have never seen a Cinderella Story. In fact, I think I've seen a Cinderella Story 2 more than I have the original A Cinderella Story. But no, I will go from least favorite to favorite, and I will start this off with my number three pick from 2000 and... Then remember the Titans. That is right. The film directed by Bose Yaken, starring Denzel Washington, Will Patton, Wood Harris, and that one guy who looks and sounds like he could be related to uh, Tom Hanks in a way. Uh, Ryan Gosling's in this. Kate Bosworth is in this. And the movie, again, it's a 2000 American sports comedy drama. More so on the drama, less on the comedy. Uh, I remember when it came out, it was a big deal that Jerry Brockheimer was producing it because Boz Yakin, the director, really wasn't a named director. In fact, he still isn't a named director unless he moved to more TV work. 
The movie is about Denzel Washington's character, and I'm trying to... Uh, Denzel Washington's character, he plays Coach Herman Boone, and he gets transferred to this high school uh, in Alexandria, Virginia in 1971. The name of that high school is T.C. Williams High School, and at this time, football was becoming more diverse. It, uh, I mean, it was tr- it was sort of kind of beginning to stray away from the all-white sport to more of white and African-American. And so this movie plays heavily on the beginning of diversity in sports. Denzel Washington is the black coach, and he is teaching a team, or he's coaching a team of mostly white players. And this film did pretty well. It made 119 million buckaroonies on a $30 million budget for Disney. And it I, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that this movie is more depressing than it is entertaining. It's a good movie. Uh, right before this movie came out, or sometime before this movie came out, I played Pee Wee Football. And I was very much in that mood when it came to camaraderie and sports. And it was something that at the time just really kind of piqued my interest and something that I was heavily involved in. Because uh, I did football, peewee football, soccer, baseball, t-ball back in the Young Tim days. And uh, eventually I left all sports and became a theater boy. But uh, even with theater, you know, we had camaraderie. And if you call it a sport, the sport of acting, it's all about camaraderie and relying on one another. And so when this movie came out, this was kind of like the beginning of Disney's sports movie craze. Because after this, you had, I think, like, sometime later, you had the the football one with Mark Wahlberg, Invincible. You had another, so many freaking basketball movies, it seems like. Uh, Most recently, John Hamm was in a baseball movie, I guess. He was like a, a baseball talent scout. So I remember the Titans was the Disney film that kind of started the trend of Disney feel-good baseball, or not baseball, but feel-good sports flicks that are made for the whole family. Unless you really don't like depressing stuff, then this movie is not for you. Um, So yeah, so my number three is Remember the Titans from, uh, from 2000. Next up is... A fun movie. You you might have heard of it. If you're over the age of eight, you might have heard of Grease. If not the Fox interpretation that or iteration that came out some months ago, the live musical thing that they did, then you have definitely heard of Grease with John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John from 1978. This is the PG-13 musical romance film that actually came out at the end of the school year in June. Uh, Surprisingly, I didn't know that until uh, I was kind of pulling up some date information up. And this is a film written by Randall Kleiser. Again, stars John Travolta, Olivia Newton-John, Starker Channing, Jeff Conway, Barry Pearl, Michael Tucci, Kelly Ward. A slew of... A lot of great character actors, including Sid Caesar. He's Coach Calhoun. And this movie is, it's got to be one of the most entertaining 
musicals out there because i mean every song is good every fast song fun song is great every slow song is good and if you get past the weird like date raping you know all the guys are just into fucking kind of undertone that the movie definitely has in the fact that the kind of nerdy very cute very hot girl sandy has to completely change herself into a babe by the end of the movie to impress danny zuko once you get past that, if you don't think about that too much, it's just a damn fun movie. And uh, yeah, it's about the first day of school, uh, for those of you who don't know. Two summer lovers, Danny Zuko and Olivia Newton-John, Sandy, whatever her last name is, meet on a on a beach somewhere. They're on vacation somewhere. They happen to run into each other and they fall in love and they're making love on the beach. They're kissing and all this stuff. And it turns out the first day of school... She transferred to Rydell High, and what do you know? They're together again. And so they're just basically trying to win the uh, the, the affection of, of one another as they're each trying to uh, appeal and not try to segregate themselves from their particular uh, class groups. You know, Danny Zuko is the tough punk kind of greaser guy, and... You know, again, Sandy isn't the girl that really goes for guys like that. You know, she's the goody-two-shoes type of girl, which is why she has to completely revamp her look at the very end. Uh, But again, it's a fun one. It's just a great back-to-school flick full of sock hops, dance, and a lot of fun singing. And lastly, a a newer film. To me, this movie captures... The, the the very essence of the first day of school, why we hate it so much. It is Richard Linkletter's latest film, his follow-up, uh, uh, his follow-up of Boyhood, Everybody Wants Some, with two exclamation marks at the end of it. It came out April 20th. Uh, actually, no, it came out, uh, uh, it, it came out like March or April of this year. And this movie follows four guys, uh, I mean, a lot of the, there are no names really uh, in this movie. Uh, uh, Kurt Russell's son, Wyatt Russell, is in this movie, he plays Willoughby, but it has Blake Jenner, Justin Street, Ryan Guzman, Tyler Hoechlin. Uh, apparently, all these, a lot of these guys are actually in uh, some, uh, you know, uh, popular TV shows with the young kids. Uh, but again, this is uh, Richard Linkletter's follow-up to Boyhood, and this chronicles a frat, a fraternity, a baseball fraternity, uh, leading up to the first day of school and uh, all the all the crazy shenanigans they get into as a as a fraternity, and they all uh, one character, his name is uh, Jake. It's his first day at the college. It's his first. He's a freshman at the at the school. It's the first day at the fraternity, and he's trying to you know not necessarily make. Making a, I guess he's trying to make an impression on all the other guys, and so it's basically like I said, it's the lead up to the first day of school. So it's like it starts on a Thursday or Friday, heads into Sunday night, and the movie ends with basically Jake, the character, stumbling into the first day of school after a night of spending a, a, a wonderful night on the Texas hill uh, uh, on a river in the texas hill country maybe the comal river i guess because the movie is based in the austin uh, uh, uh stephen f austin university area and 
you know, by the end, it's the classic, you know, back to school teen kind of movie. You know, you have to have that one character, the nice guy that we, the normal Joes can relate to, who falls in love with that very pretty nice girl. And he does. And the movie just has that great feeling of what to look forward to. But yet you really don't want this time to end and like i said the movie just ends with him and his other freshman buddy kind of stumbling into like a physics class or history class and as the teacher comes in to start the class they fall asleep and it's just like the greatest ending because we've all been there at some point and it's you know to me at least i think that is that makes for um that helps make for one of the the better modern day back to school flicks even though they don't really get to the school stuff until the very end of the movie so again my three picks for my not necessarily favorite but uh, worth mentioning back to school movies are remember the titans from the year 2000 greece from 1978 and finally everybody wants some from this year 2016 Awesome, awesome, awesome. All right, well, next week we are also going to do another three squared, back-to-back three squareds, look out. Um, We are going to be doing our picks for our worst Paramount movies. Now, it's been quite a while, but we actually did uh, our picks for the worst Warner Brothers movies, and I was looking through for some ideas, and I was like, hey, why don't we pick on Paramount this time? And Tim was like, that sounds like a good idea. And that's what we're going to do. So next week's Three Squared, uh, we're going to do our picks for the worst movies that Paramount has ever made, in our opinion. And without further ado, I think we are ready for the movies, are we not, sir? Movie it up. All right, folks, here we go. It's the movies. This week's flicks, our, 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 <laughs> Sausage Party and Kubo and the Two Strings. Uh, where would you like to start, sir? Can we save the best for last, or should we should we do the best first and save the worst for last? Oh, well, I don't know. Which one did you like the most? Kubo? I mean, this could have gone either way, couldn't it? It could. I mean, maybe. <laughs> no, no. I say let's save best for last. Okay, because I'll tell you what. I fucking hated one of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, okay. Interesting. Then I guess we shall start with Sausage Pate. Uh, Sausage Party, 2016 American adult computer animated adventure comedy film. It's directed by Greg Tiernan. And it is uh, a movie starring Michael Sarah, James Franco, Bill Hader, Salma Hayek, Jonah Hill, Anders Holm, Nick Kroll, um, Seth Rogen, Paul Rudd, Kristen Wiig, Craig Robinson, Ed Norton, Danny McBride, David uh, Crumholtz. So basically anybody um, who's ever been a friend of... Um, Seth Rogen is pretty much in this movie. And um, I'm sure you could probably even find like an elementary high school friend or, you know, elementary or high school friend, like as a just a random voice somewhere, because it's like literally everybody Seth Rogen knows is in this movie. 
<sighs> anyway, so we, we have here is a movie about a supermarket and the foods in said supermarket are very excited to go to the great beyond where they think all life is wonderful and the, and their dreams will come true. Um, and then, of course, what would happen if they found out what really happens to food and the adventures and or misadventures from there uh, with all shenanigans ensuing. So with, uh, going with our new format here, of course, we're going to do the spoiler-free portion, please. If uh, Once we've given our review scores, if you don't want to have the spoilers, just go to the episode description and you can find the timestamp for the next movie and just skip right there. Otherwise, enjoy what we talk about. Actually, you should do that anyway, but you can enjoy the spoilers too. All right. Um, this movie is in no way, shape, or form hiding itself as an allegory or metaphor, take your pick, for um, how incredibly stupid anyone who believes in any form or fashion of religion is, and why you are an idiot for not thinking for yourself, despite the idea that maybe people have faith, because that's what is that's what makes them them. Um... And while it does have a thinly veiled moderation to its message, it's uh, something that is far too little, far too late. Outside of that, there are tons of puns and good jokes and stuff, but at the same time, while it is incredibly offensive and yet funny while it's being offensive and allows you to understand and laugh at the stuff because of the subtext of the humor, for example, we have a bagel who's Jewish, right? See? And then a falafel wrapper uh, like pita bread um, that is, I guess, uh, Arab for uh, for lack of a better representation. Um, Middle Eastern, what have you. Uh, there are still very funny things that can be... Uh, discerned from that, but you also have um, stuff where they where it's clearly meant to be over the top, and yet you're where you where it's funny even though it's over the top. They just don't let it ever stop, and the over the topness is ridiculous. And yet the that everything that's over the top is established within the first let's say eight minutes of the movie, and the movie is eighty eight minutes long. So, I can't say that I didn't like the movie, because I did laugh frequently, but there's just so many things that kind of pissed me off about it that it really mellowed my enjoyment of it. So, it kind of ekes in at a three. Quality of the animation is just blah. It's not bad. It's not great. Um, a lot of the jokes are funny, but the attempt at in-your-face, over-the-top humor and in-your-face offensiveness despite having something that uh, to, to, to attempt to make it temperate um, pretty much falls fat, flat and spoils most of the fun. No pun intended since we're talking about food. Uh, so it ekes out at three stars for me. Uh, something that could have been amazing was reduced to just barely being likable. What do you got there, Tim? Do you ever see those movies where by the end of it, you're just in a bad mood? 
<laughs> yeah. I, I definitely have. It it doesn't happen often with me, but this was one of them. Uh, first off, I'll say, since I work at Sony uh, in Columbia TriStar, I was able to see this movie for free. Just wanted to throw that out there. I didn't have to pay to go see it. And, you know, I I like the premise of the movie. I, thought, I think the idea is... A good idea. It's smart. The idea is funny, and it could have been significantly better. The movie was made for nineteen million bucks, and I think it showed. I, I, I guess to keep it short, because I really don't have a lot of good things to say about it. Except I, the only time I really laughed was at the name of the bagel, which is Sammy Bagel Jr. And that's pretty much it. I really didn't laugh a lot. The reason I guess I could say that the movie pissed me off so much. I'll just go right into the bad shit since I'm only giving the movie a 1.75. They, uh, there, there are a couple elements. The first is they rely heavily on the story, the anti-religious story. And the funny thing is, is that I'm not religious at all, but yet... I like good storytelling. And this movie, when you're relying on one gimmick, a single outlining gimmick, which is the overall story of, of you know, the you know, the the whole basic idea that the the food is the food basically calls humans gods. They think we're gods, and that we're gonna take them home and love them and cuddle with them and all this stuff, and it's all a joke, you know, and then the the whole underlining kind of parallel with real life is that, well, I mean, what they're trying to say is that religion itself is a joke. You have all these believers. You have the sausage trying to convince the bun, the love of his life, that religion is not real. You know, what they believe in is not real and all that stuff. And again, like, I'm behind the story in a way, but when it's so in your face from beginning to end, and that's what they're relying on as the solid foundation of the film... It just wears on you. And then the second thing, and probably the biggest thing, is the language. I don't mind... I, I love cussing. I cuss on the show. We both cuss on the show, Matt and I. But I, what I don't think is funny is when people say fuck during, like, in every single sentence. And it kind of got to the point to where it felt like they were purposely doing it just because of the irony that it was like a Disney Pixar film, you know, because they wanted to see a Disney Pixar movie with bad language in it. So they decided to to incorporate that in their film. And so like every funny one line always had the F word in it. So there was no nuance in, in, in the lines at all, because whenever you hear the fuck or the curse word, it just kind of like puts everything at a halt. And another thing I'm a firm believer on is that you sound fucking stupid if every single sentence, if every single piece of dialogue that you have, you have to curse to really get your point across. And that was the big issue I had with the movie. I dug the opening. They they have a big uh, opening number that was uh, done by Alan Menken. Yeah, his first name is Alan, right? Yeah, Alan Menken. He did all the lyrics for, like, Lion King and Aladdin and Little Mermaid, I think, Beauty and the Beast, and he helped write the opening number. And it's a great number, and the movie starts off on a high note. And there are some novel ideas throughout the movie. But they, in a way, they they, they 
rip off both Toy Story 2 and their own movie, you know, Sony Animation's own film, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. They make all these puns, they make all these references to food in Sausage Party, like... You know, they, they they say a food, but they use it in a sentence or whatever, and I can't think of anything that they said. But then, like, that food item pops out, and they say, oh, no, yeah, no, 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 you know, we're not talking about you, we're actually talking about this type of thing. Well, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs in both movies do the exact same thing. You might remember from the trailer when they're on a boat, and they go, there's a leak on the boat, and there's actually a leak, you know, the vegetable, a leak on the boat. You know, but I thought... That Cloudy with the Chance of Meatballs, the delivery and the ideas were much funnier because they might have been more often, but it, it's such like a childish thing to rely on that type of joke that it worked better in a kid's movie than it does in an adult R-rated film. And that's the thing, is that they didn't find the right balance between raunchy R and, you know, something that's that's good entertainment. And it perplexes me because I know the movie has great reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. People love it. But I am not a Seth Rogen fan. And I guess you could tell. I mean, I, I, there are a number of movies. I don't want to say I'm not a Seth Rogen fan. Because there are a number of movies that I, I very much like of his. This is the End is one of them. I went into This is the End thinking that I wasn't going to like it. And I thoroughly enjoyed the movie. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Sausage Party, I went into it thinking I was going to enjoy it quite a bit, that they were going to do some fun and cool original things, and they really don't. Again, they just beat the the, uh, beat the dead horse. And so that is why I land on, without getting too much into spoiler territory, on 1.75 out of 5. Anything good I have to say about the movie is the idea of it, is the overall premise and in my opinion, that's really what it all has going for it. Well, okie dokie. So, I guess in in the spoiler territory for me, I, I guess I just don't understand um, why, uh, like, I, again, I understand the humor behind it, and I understand the idea of trying to be offensive. But at the same time, I don't understand why they had to utilize all the stereotypes that they did um at the very least maybe they could have gotten people who are willing to recognize the irony or the satire um of those ethnicities to participate um but they didn't do that for the most part uh for example i don't know of i looked a little bit cursory glance only so i apologize if i'm mistaken in advance but i don't think bill Hader is native american at all but he plays Firewater, an Indian, a Native American Indian uh, type, and I guess I and and again like the whole the the whole religion thing really bothered me because while I personally have a big problem with religion, I don't have a problem with faith, and I think that people who choose to believe in things who live by example um, and proselytize, but don't beat you over the head with it. Um, it's kind of the ideal, right? Um, there's actually this one guy, I will not speak his name because I don't know if in this particular instance it's going to be appropriate or not. There's this one dude at my work who is 
uh, very devout Muslim guy. And I swear to God, I have never, I truly have never met anyone more Christ-like in my life than this dude. I mean, seriously. Uh, that's just your average Joe. I'm not talking about those super amazing preacher type people who really truly like live it. But this guy, I was like, you know, holy crap. If anybody could convince me to uh, be a Muslim, it's this dude, right? And he's just such a gentle, caring, and, and you see that as the way you people live, as, as people live. And yeah, of course, there are douchebags out there in every religion, and there are douchebags that are easy to make fun of, and it's always easy to make fun of, especially Southern religious folk and stuff like that. And it's just the thing is, is that while the joke at first is funny, uh, because you get the parody, you get the, you know, you get, you get the allegory, it's low hanging fruit. And, um, like the whole song at the beginning about, oh, we love, and then of course, you know, they're, they're, they're just touching just the tips and stuff like that, and they're worried about their sexuality, and the empanada, who's clearly a lesbian, you know, but Catholic and all that kind of stuff. Um, it just, it's, it's literally always low hanging fruit. It never actually elevates itself in the humor. And again, that's where it goes from being, yeah, it's offensive and it's okay to be offensive and funny to just kind of being, do you really have nothing better to do with 80 fucking minutes of your time? Seriously? It, it's those kinds of things that just completely add on to themselves all the time that irritate the piss out of me about this movie. And yet there are lots of legitimately funny things too, because, uh, the idea behind the non-perishables, uh, you know, like the Twinkie, the, the whiskey, um, the grits and stuff like that, that restore order to the chaos that is the grocery store when they know what happens to food is great. Plus the idea of how things are set up in grocery stores so that they, um, have to be, um, so that in the adventure mode, a la Toy Story 2 that Tim was alluding to happen, are are also very clever. But the thing is, is once again, it's low-hanging fruit. Instead of actually building off of that and doing something with it, you know, great. And then, of course, they, they have a scene where humans are able to actually see the food for what they really are, for what it really is, but only under bath salts, right? Again, it's like they've got these really clever, funny nuggets but it's all low-hanging fruit, and they just don't ever really build on it. Um, and it, they, they, and in certain aspects, they kind of defy their own logic for the movie. Which again, talking food, whatever. But when you get a willingness for the suspension of disbelief, you have to at least kind of stay in the realm of it. So. There's just, again, there's so many things that are likable and everything, but they just con constantly shoot themselves in the foot. Um, and, yeah. So that's that's really more of the, for me, the explanation of why it does so. It, it did so well and yet so poorly at the same time. So I don't know. I mean, did you have anything else you wanted to add there, Tim? Or shall we just wrap it up? Yeah, just, yeah, not really. There, I mean, there's really nothing for me to spoil I mean, there's not really, like, big revelations that happen other than, you know, once you kind of hit the, the end, the last act, when the humans can see the the food talking and stuff and the whole stupid food porn scene at the end that just felt like it was just fucking thrown in there 
for some really weird reason. Um, but like, it, it, it's more of the same. You know, Kristen Wiig is playing the same Kristen Wiig character where she's not like comfortable in her own skin. Where you know she's. You know, she she has trouble saying the right things, I guess. She plays the same character, and I and the movie focuses heavily on her as well as Seth Rogen's character, which, you know, I thought he was fine. I mean, Seth Rogen is a likable guy, despite some of the crappy stuff that he writes or he says or whatever. But I know that he has a talent. There There is something talent within him, you know, and we've seen it in a number of other movies. But after watching this, I, I just don't know, and I, re- and I really hope they don't make a freaking sequel to this movie, because then it will be just like SpongeBob SquarePants 2, you know, the Sponge Out of Water movie, where it's the SpongeBob SquarePants characters in 3D, but they're in the real life, interacting with real people, with pirate Antonio Banderas chasing after them. You know, there's really no point to it. And, I, you know, I, I know I, it's it's a battle that I will never win. And I will never, you know, uh, attempt to fight. Because I know I am definitely in the minority when it comes to this movie and other movies like that, like this. Which is why you keep seeing more Seth Rogen movies that are pretty much the exact same thing. Like Neighbors and Neighbors 2 and... Uh, uh, the night before, even though the night before had its moments, it's still just kind of another Seth Rogen movie with more like Christmassy frill to it. So I, I mean, I don't know. I, I just hope he he moves up a couple levels when it comes to the quality of work. So yeah, one point seven five out of five sausage party for me. Cool. And again, three stars for me on that. All right. Well, then that is going to bring us to the better of our two movies for this week. Definitely seems like the mutual favorite. Kubo and the Two Strings. Uh, 2016 American 3D stop-motion fantasy action-adventure films directed by Travis Knight. And it stars Charlize Theron, Art Parkinson, Ralph Fiennes, Rooney Mara, George Takei, and Matthew McConaughey. Um... Now, and what this does is as follows, uh, it's ancient Japan, it follows a young boy named Kubo, who is uh, the son of a mystical, uh, a very mystical woman, who clearly has a magic, um, uh, uh, shamisen, which is the, um, which is that uh, kind of odd looking three string guitar almost like a guitar slash Japanese guitar slash banjo um, and there's magic there and Kubo goes and tells stories every day that's kind of how he gets by um, and yet every night he has to go with his mother who is kind of in a trance like state during the day but comes to life at night and yet she is having problems um kind of remembering everything that has happened to her because of the tragedy that happened regarding Kubo's grandfather taking one of his eyes. Um, All of this, of course, leads to adventure and a life-changing experience for Kubo, and that the movie is ultimately the story of that 
experience that Kubo goes um, on this grand quest. Now, visually, I have a really tough time saying that this one's better than The Little Prince. Um, only because... Uh, only because the storytelling combined with The Little Prince's animation uh, just still, even now, weeks later, just really grabs me um, a lot differently than Kubo and the Two Strings did. However... That is not to say in any way, shape, or form that Kubo and the Two Strings is not a beautiful movie. So, so, so beautiful. So, so beautiful. Amazing stop-motion work. Truly, truly amazing stop-motion work. Um, And it is that beauty of the movie that buoys this film. Um, The performances also, the voice acting performances, all really, really, really well done. There are two things for this, for me with this film that really hurt it though. Um, and it's not enough to, to say that it's not a good movie or that it just barely comes to it. It doesn't. This is going to land at a 3.75 for me. Um, and it's based on these two things. You can kind of look at the, you can look at, uh, the story itself as kind of a four act story. We have a beginning that, uh, an introduction, if you will. Uh, prologue more or less that sets up the um, that that sets up what the adventure is and the adventure itself happens in three parts and the third part combines actually uh, the epilogue and the oh gosh what's the Oh, gee, what is the stupid word I'm thinking of? I can't think of it. It's right before the Dinume. It's the pinnacle of the action. Can't think of the word, so... Crescendo? No, well, that's that's the rise. No, I can't. I'll, I'll, at any rate, okay. So the, the fourth act basically combines everything instead of letting it have its own natural fall so which isn't necessarily a bad thing but the thing is is that you the prologue itself act one sets up such an amazing grand adventure and you're just the whole time you're just like i was literally edge of my seat and it was just fantastic and then the remaining parts of the film just seem to kind of prod along and they don't happen organically. It's almost like they happen by accident. And so the storytelling really tends to fall apart in the remaining three-fourths of this four-act movie, if you will. Um, it doesn't mean it's not good. It's still a good story. It's just I think that they needed so much. They needed a much better way to make the transitions between the acts more organic. And when we get to the spoiler section, uh, it'll be easier to explain that. The other side of that is is that despite these amazing voice acting performances, they really and truly were. I really felt like it loses a huge degree of authenticity by having no true um, effort at really having Asian actors. Now, we have George Takei in a very, very minor role, and also Kari Hiroyuki Tagawa in another very, very minor role. And yet, these are clearly Japanese people um, in a Japanese village in ancient Japan telling a very Japanese story. But nary a Japanese person or any Asian person for that matter 
to be found in the true principal cast. It's a very small cast. There's only about seven seven real roles um, in the film, and they're all played by white folk. And 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 it's really hard for me to maintain my immersion when I'm sitting there going, why is Matthew McConaughey talking to me? It's it, because the thing is, is that it's this just insane juxtaposition because he's really doing a phenomenal job, but I still know it's Matthew McConaughey. And I'm like, maybe this was just because they are, are kind of gearing it towards an American audience. So people, you know, will know the voices or whatever, but at the same time, and then I was like, so maybe they have a Japanese cut or something with, no, this is a straight up American production. And these are the voices that they went with. And I'm like, you, you, you gotta be kidding me. And, and it kept breaking my immersion. Don't get me wrong. Charlize Theron does an amazing job. Art Parkinson is really, really good. They, they bring so much, but, not authenticity. So you've got this amazing story that sets up wonderfully, but then kind of trips on itself as it moves along. And then you've got this amazing performance going on all the way around. And yet it's constantly grading that this is a Japanese story with Japanese characters voiced completely by American people. Well, English in the case of, uh, Ralph Fiennes and I guess South African strictly speaking in terms of Charlize Theron but you get the idea white folk doing these voices and so that is where it comes to me at a 3.75 beautiful beautiful movie wonderful story idea great initial action setup but and good performances but a level of immersion that was constantly broken and not the best transitions as the story completely told. So 3.75 out of 5. Still worth seeing. It's still worth seeing. But I think it really does have some flaws. What do you got there, Tim? I think this is the best Leica movie. I thought it was, I think it's a better movie than Box Trolls, Paranorman, even, uh, maybe even Coraline. I, I love the overall story. I love the adventure and I, I do enjoy the performances, though I think the one that really stood out that bugged me the most was Matt, was Matthew McConaughey's, because he has that, uh, it's not a lisp he has, but he, he does, he kind of, he does that, and it's kind of like whistles sometimes, too. Uh, but after a while, it didn't bother me as much, and it kind of went along with the natural quirks of the character, I suppose. I mean the movie the the movie was well executed. It's beautiful to look at. It's 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 a great experience and it's definitely not I don't think for really young kids, especially pampered young kids which you kind of come across more of now. Even though some of the kids when I went to the movie theater last Saturday at 9:30 in the morning, I've got a couple of like there were like like a handful of like 6-year-olds that were like explaining to their parents what was going on when the movie was over. So I, I guess it can appeal to quite a few kids. It's just a very entertaining movie to where if you've had any fe- like deep feelings towards your parents, it'll get to you. Um, 
my parents are divorced. They've been divorced for a little over 10 years now. And I, I guess just the idea of a better relationship with both of them and with both of them with each other is, is something that I kind of always longed for, you know, that I, that I always kind of wished for, especially after uh, my parents broke up. So watching this movie, especially by the end of the movie, it really kind of touched my heart. And I, I'll get into a couple other things, uh, you know, in the spoiler section, but I, I really don't have too much to say about it, um, nor do I have too much to complain about but I do give this movie 4.25 out of 5, mainly Matthew McConaughey as the voice role. Nothing against him, it's just I don't think it his voice really fit the character. And when it came to the adventure portion of the film, like the giant skeleton and whatnot, I kind of wanted to see maybe another 10 or 12 minutes of, of, of just more adventure, I guess. And I think that really would have made the ending a bit more impactful i suppose but 4.25 out of 5 for me right on okay so digging into what i was talking about the story has like i said four elements to it climax that's the word i was looking for all right so we've got a basically a four-part uh play now or a four-part whatever movie play action so when when we're dealing with the setup of the movie here You've got a, uh, you've got the setup here where we find out that, uh, Kubo is actually the child of a, a, basically a demigod and a great warrior. And Kubo's grandfather looks at his daughter's action, because she's the demigod who falls in love with this great warrior, um, as like this act of treason, because they're supposed to be blind to the whims of man so that they can be truly just in dealing with mankind. And that's why he's trying to, that's why Kubo, that's why the grandfather is trying to steal Kubo's eyes because when, if he becomes blind, then he too will be like his grandfather. So as an infant, he gets the first eye, the grandfather gets the first eye, but his mother escapes with the second. Now they can only find Kubo at night when, if he's outside, uh, if he's out in the open, basically not with his mom. And so once this uh, action is set up and the only way that Kubo is basically able, is going to be able to fight to save himself from his grandfather is he's got to collect three, uh, a three piece armor set. Uh, There's a sword, there's a basically like a, a, a chest plate and then a helmet. And so there are your three other acts. We're going to get the sword. We're going to get the breastplate. We're going to get the helmet. And and so they kind of combined the climax with the denouement and everything uh, in as soon as he retrieves the uh, helmet. But the thing is, is that it just kind of the story itself just kind of clunks along where uh, we've got this great buildup and this huge opening, and now he's on his quest where he has to go and find uh, the the sword and everything else and. Like Tim mentioned with the skeleton, they just kind of fall into it. And it's like, oh, man, this is going to be some great thing. And then it's just kind of over in, you know, a minute or two. Um, and then 
they just kind of like, okay, well, that was that. Let's just quick get back onto the next part of the journey with no real transition and no real um, thing for the quest. They just kind of take it, let, they let the quest and the story itself take a backseat to why Kubo is there, uh, the monkey, who the monkey really is, who the beetle really is in terms of being mom and dad, respectively. Um, and then it's just like, okay, oh, time to go do the breastplate. Well, they then fo- shift focus from the breastplate itself and have the mom and the sister fighting. But it's not called, you know, mom, the monkey, and the two strings. It's called Kubo and the two strings. And so you have this kind of break. And then as the whole thing is basically centered around Kubo getting these pieces, you, they keep falling away from that. And it's really frustrating. It's really, really frustrating. And then again, it's just kind of like, oh, well, okay, quick. Hey, let's go and grab this helmet because I just saw it in a dream and nobody wants to question how Kubo would know to look for the helmet just based on a dream. And that, of course, turns into a trap. But then he's like, oh, no, I got it. It was back at the beginning. And so he ends up back at the beginning to get the uh to back in his beginning village where the movie starts to go and get this helmet and it's like what so those are the things that like were really really bothering me about the actual way that the story was told because it's got this just amazing setup going into the actual quest for the three pieces of armor and um yeah so uh, yeah that's that's that that's all I really wanted to say, spoiler-wise. So, I don't know. Anything to add there, Tim? No, I, actually not. I think it's a very good movie. Take your kids, go see it, and let us know what you think, and especially how it compares to other Leica films as well. And let me know if you were touched in any way uh, by the ending of the film, because, it I mean, it doesn't end happy, which is kind of nice to see, and which is what I really like about... This company's films, Coraline is 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 very dark. Uh, Box Trolls is probably the most kid friendly of all their films, and Paranorman is very dark as well. So this movie again deals with death and uh, and family. And what really got me is at the very end of the movie, at the end of the credits, it says that this film from the director of this movie is is dedicated to my two strings, my mom and my dad. And for some reason, it didn't really click in my head that, oh, so Kubo's two strings are his mother and his father. And I I didn't quite lose it, but I had to leave the movie theater pretty quick after, <laughs> after I saw the ending of the credits. Because it just kind of, I started kind of like thinking about the movie more and just started, you know, just, just realizing how important his family was to uh, uh, how uh, Kubo's family was important to Kubo. And it just kind of, kind of clicked in my head like, Oh, I thought the two strings was the, the instrument he was playing, but no, it's his parents. (laughs) And he was with his parents the entire time that he was relying on. And his parents were relying on him. And I don't know. It was just, it was fantastic. And the last praise I'll give it is the music. I think the music is uh, absolutely excellent. Excellent, excellent, especially the rendition of my guitar gently weeps. The See, I completely disagree with just that part. The, mo- the the movie, the music and the score in the movie is fantastic. I did not like my uh, my guitar gently weeps. Oh really? I, yeah, I was not impressed with that at all. 
So it's interesting, though, that I just I think it's really cool where we agree and disagree on this movie. It's pretty, pretty, pretty fascinating. So anyways. All right. Well, another fantastic uh, review session taken care of. Next week, we are going to be doing some VOD movies. We've got The Phenom and Imperium. And thus concludes another show and brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the... SLS cast. You can find us at slscast.com. You can also send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And you can always follow us on Twitter at the SLS cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And you can also follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire. And don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Matthew McConaughey, I get to say this. When I see grace in a woman that's very sexy, you can tell by how someone moves or their rhythm. Take your cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>